Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing alright. Right before we sat down to record, Ben went to open a two liter of club soda, and it practically exploded on him. That is true. Yeah. So it, it, it's like one of those days, a bit of a Charlie Brown day for Ben. Maybe. Maybe that's true. <laughs> what are we watching today? I feel like it's going to be something that's really original and unique and something we have not ever seen before. Yeah, it's a uh, another Boris Karloff mad scientist picture <laughs> from Columbia, directed by Nick Grinda and produced by Wallace McDonald and shot by Ben Klein. You know, coming right on the heels of The Man with Nine Lives. Okay, what is this one called? Before I Hang. Okay. So at least it bucks the the man with blah, 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 blah trend of the titles. Sure. So I imagine with the title, like, Before I Hang, it's a, I'm, I'm expecting a bit of a revenge story, perhaps. It also might tie into the fact that, like, all of these mad scientists Karloff keeps playing generally tend to uh, get, like, sentenced to death. Yeah. Between The Man With Nine Lives and Before I Hang, Karloff found the time to appear in Doomed to Die, the fifth in his Mr. Wong Detective series that he was doing for his concurrent commitment to monogram pictures. Okay. So he was sort of, at this point in time, alternating between these Columbia Mad Scientist movies and these Mr. Wong monogram movies. So two franchises going on. Basically. Like, um... Robert Downey Jr. in Sherlock Holmes and Iron Man. Sure, right. So The Man They Could Not Hang had been written by Carl Brown, George Wallace Sire, and Leslie T. White. The Man with Nine Lives was written by Carl Brown and Harold Shoemate. Before I Hang is written by Carl Brown and Robert Hardy Andrews. Okay. So Andrews was a supremely prolific writer. He was a reporter for the Chicago Daily News. He was editor of Midweek Magazine. He wrote six novels, 46 screenplays, and thousands of radio dramas. Uh, He averaged 100,000 words a week. He wrote seven radio plays a day at his peak. Uh, He wrote from noon to midnight, seven days a week, on five packs of cigarettes a day and 40 cups of coffee. A day. Yeah. Wow. He was a worker churned out product. Yeah. <laughs> you would have done very well in today's like Listicle. YouTube content factory kind of world, I think. <laughs> well, it sounds like he did pretty well in his time period as mm-hmm. well. The female lead of Before I Hang was Evelyn Keys, who was 24 years old when the film was made. She began in film in 1938 under contract to Cecil B. DeMille. That's kind of an impressive place to start in film. For sure. In 1939, she appeared as Sue Ellen O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Uh, That's Scarlett O'Hara's sister. Okay. Uh, She had an abortion so that she could appear in that film because it was such a prestigious project to get. Yeah. Uh, And the procedure left her unable to bear children because this is in the days of sort of 
back alley abortions, as it were. She was under contract to Columbia when she made Before I Hang, and spent much of her time at Columbia Studios fending off the advances of studio boss Harry Cohn. Ugh. She was married to Columbia contract director Charles Vidore from 1943 to 1946, and Vidore being Columbia's top director kind of helped shield her from Cohn. And then after that, she was married to actor-director John Huston from 1946 to 1950, with whom she adopted a child. She retired in 1956. Her final major role was in The Seven-Year Itch as Tom Ewell's character's wife. Okay. The heroic lead in Before I Hang was played by Bruce Bennett, who was born Harold Herman Bricks in 1905. By high school, he was just going by Herman Bricks, um, which was the name of his older brother who had died, and he started calling himself this to please his father. Okay. Basically, his older brother was sort of the, the, the favored son. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was a track and field athlete who won the silver medal in shot put at the 1928 Olympics. In 1931, MGM cast him as Tarzan in their upcoming feature film adaptation of the Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, but Bricks broke his shoulder before filming began, so the role was recast with swimmer Johnny Weissmuller. However, Burroughs set out to make his own rival Tarzan production, (laughs) uh, which was a movie serial rather than a feature film, and cast Bricks for It and the sequel. Bricks' Tarzan is generally considered to be more accurate to the books, than Weissmuller's. Well, it makes sense if it's Burroughs who's adapting it. Uh, but the higher-budgeted MGM films sort of became the standard image of the character in the public imagination. Okay. Finding himself typecast as Tarzan after these uh, movie serials, Bricks changed his name to Bruce Bennett and signed with Columbia Pictures, uh, which is where we find him here. He served in World War II, uh, continued acting after the war. He died at 100 years old in 2007. Uh, He was an athlete to the very end. Uh, He was a regular skydiver and parasailer into his late 90s. Oh my god. I I would expect like a 90-year-old who's skydiving to just die from a heart attack as you're going down, you know? (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm afraid of heights, so maybe that's... My bias, I guess. Yeah, I mean, older people who keep active their whole lives can do a lot of incredible things. Sure, but skydiving? <laughs> There's other ways to be active rather than, like, life-threatening activities. So Before I Hang also reunites us with Edward Van Sloan, who we last saw in Dracula's Daughter, mm-hmm. and Pedro de Cordoba, who we saw in Condemned to Live and The Devil Doll. Before I Hang was released on September 17th, 1940. It would be the last Karloff-Grinda collaboration. Oh. Karloff's next film for the studio, The Devil Commands, would continue to explore the mad scientist premise, but with a different crew behind the scenes. Huh, I wonder what changed to make that happen. Yeah, who knows? It could just have been everyone's scheduling assignments at the studios. I guess. But, like, it's been so consistent. Like, even down to the writer. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's a team, but, like, there's been the same consistent writer for each of these. Mm-hmm. Which is probably not helping the formulaic 
nature of them. <laughs> but yeah, we'll we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah, maybe there's an explanation when we watch the movie as to why this is the last one with this crew. Yeah, so how are we watching this? Well, Before I Hang is available on Google Play, YouTube, and iTunes, and is also on DVD as part of the Boris Karloff collection from Mill Creek Entertainment. Cool, so we'll be watching the DVD version, but if you would like to watch along with us, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find a YouTube playlist, and the film will be on there, and uh, you'll be able to see and experience... What we see and experience. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after having watched Before I Hang. See you on the other side. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Before I Hang from 1940, directed by Nick Grinda. Sarah, what did you think of this flick? Um, they changed up the structure a little bit, so mm-hmm. that was kind of neat. Um, technically, I think it's fairly well made. Um, mm-hmm. There's just something about it that doesn't hold tension for me. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I felt very similar in regards to this movie as to how I felt about Man with Nine Lives. Yeah. You much preferred Man with Nine Lives to me. Yeah. Um, but this is, to me, this movie felt about the same. Competently made. Um, wonderfully shot. I thought the cinematography from uh, Benjamin Klein was really good. Um, but it was sort of devoid of real tension or suspense for me. Same. Yeah. So what happens in Before I Hang, Sarah? Well, it starts with Dr. Garth who is Boris Karloff, at his murder trial over medically-assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. Which, just in case you were curious, Ben slash listener, um, currently there's only seven states in the U.S. that allow it or have some kind of, like, avenue if you want to pursue it. Only seven out of 50-plus states. 52? I think it's 50. I think there's only 50 states. Still, that's that's like you failed the class if you got like 7 out of 50. You know, sure. like conversely, Canada, as of 2016, has it, mm. if you're also curious. California, though, only got it in 1992. And I would assume that in 1940, probably it was illegal everywhere. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's being tried for murder for having done this to a patient. He explains in his kind of statement before sentencing that what he had been trying to do with his patient was find a cure for old age. And I'll explain what that all is in a minute. Um, But they were trying to find this cure because this patient was having like chronic pain as a result of being older. And when they kept failing to find this cure, finally Dr. Garth was like, I'll just help you pass. Mm -hmm. That's not okay with the courts. Mm -hmm. And uh, they sentence him to be hanged in one month 
as Dr. Garth goes to prison, he's brought into the warden's office where he meets um, the prison doctor, Dr. Howard, who is played by Edward Van Sloan. The warden seems to acknowledge that, like, you know, you've gotten a little bit of a raw deal, I see where you were coming from with this assisted suicide, so we're going to help you continue your work with Dr. Howard here, but your time limit is before you hang. Sure. Hence the title of the movie. And it's in this scene that we finally get an explanation of how exactly you cure old age. And the idea is that old age is the result of our cells functioning to become, you know, being human and functioning with, like, higher brain functions and all of these things. That generates almost like a poisonous byproduct, which ages you. Now, I'm no doctor, but I'm pretty sure that's not how old age works. But the idea is that, you know, if we can inoculate ourselves against the poisonous byproduct, we can either A, stop aging, and in the case of this film, kind of de-age by a few years. It reminded me a lot of the um, amorphous notion of toxins that you hear a lot about in, like, (laughs) um, alternative medicine, where it's like, oh, like, eat these eucalyptus leaves and smoke this marijuana and take these, like, (laughs) crystal pills... And you'll you'll clean your body of toxins. Like that's that, kind of what it made me think of when he when he talked about it. Fair enough. It's, yes. Uh, Side note: That's what your liver does. Yes. You're fine. Yeah. There's no such. This is not how anything works. But for the sake of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he, Doctor Garth and Doctor Howard are working away on this, and they <laughs> have like a throwaway line of like. Oh, we we used the last batch of blood we had for this latest serum. Um, There's going to be a murderer executed tomorrow. Can we just use his blood to keep working along because we're on a tight time frame? And that's kind of a throwaway line, but that's kind of the key to this movie because um, they use that murderer's blood to create the serum. Garth inoculates himself against old age to test it because, you know, he's going to be hanged anyways. And lo and behold, he does de-age, about 30-ish years. Um, But now he has these murderous urges. Yeah, it's the blood of Orlac. Yeah, pretty much. Because of this success, um, Dr. Howard's like, cool, I'll go next. I'm an old guy. Let's, uh, Let's inoculate me. And as Dr. Garth draws the blood, these murderous urges arise, and he strangles Howard. Um, An inmate comes in, sees this, and goes to fight off Garth. Garth kills him, and in the process, gets a head injury. Um, So he doesn't quite remember what exactly happened, but the prison itself puts things together, thinking that they were about to inoculate Howard. The inmate interrupted, killed Howard, and then tried to kill Garth. Meanwhile, in the background... Garth gets a change of sentencing by the governor uh, from being executed to life imprisonment, um, ironically happening right as he inoculates himself. So he's like, what if the life is just forever? And then that later turns into, hey, you're getting released because you're a hero for having fought off this inmate. So he's released. After being, you know, sent back into the real world, Garth invites three of his old friends to dinner and asks if they would like to be inoculated. This is George Wharton, Victor Sondini, who is a pianist, um, and Stephen Barclay. 
And I mention the pianist because we get this very long scene of him just playing the piano and everyone sitting and enjoying it. And it's just too long of a scene of just listening to someone play the piano. We were five minutes short of a feature-length runtime, apparently. Yeah, clearly. Um, so these three old friends, they politely decline uh, to be inoculated. So Garth goes to see Sandini, because he seems the most kind of on the fence. You know, he uses his hands to play the piano, um, you know, arthritis. Like you do. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes people use their feet, you know. His old age is catching up with him, and it's actually affecting his work, because arthritis in the hands, and blah, 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 blah. So later that night, Garth goes to see Sandini, and Sandini is like, okay, you know what, this is clearly important to you. I... I think I can do this. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. So Garth is getting ready to inoculate him, and the murderous urge hits him, and he strangles Sandini. At this point, Garth now recalls, obviously, murdering Sandini, but also murdering Dr. Howard and the inmate, and he's quite freaked out by this. So he goes to his friend George to be like, Hey, um, I'm a murderer, but... I just want to make sure that this work, my life's work, continues. So what I'm asking for is your help to preserve this work. Let me inoculate you. That way there's like a living proof that this inoculation works because I should be executed for having murdered these people. Um, And then we'll, we'll be fine. And George is like, yeah, sure. Let me just reach for this safety button uh, to call for help. And Garth murders him. Um, for reaching for the help button. So the police are closing in during a scene where Garth's daughter, Martha, is getting threatened. Um, And Garth escapes and marches back to the prison, intending to demand to be hanged, um, or at the very least locked up. And uh, as he's let in, he has murderous urges towards a guard, and the guard shoots him in self-defense. And then we have kind of a, a... you know, a moment where Garth explains, like, yes, it was good to be shot because I'm a murderer, blah. And then we cut to Martha and Garth's assistant slash Martha's fiance, Dr. Paul, who hasn't really been in much of this movie up to this point, talking about wanting to remember Garth as he was before the serum and before the prison time, and wanting to continue his work and to push science forward. The end. There's some interesting creative ideas in this movie. Yeah. Um, Sort of like I think there was interesting ideas in the previous Mad Scientist movies. But this movie is such a slow burn that there may as well be, like, no flame. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) Sure. It's like toaster oven level of, of heat. Yeah. What was surprising to me is that, like, in the context setting Mm -hmm. part... You were talking about how this is the last time that the behind-the-scenes crew mm-hmm. is around. Like, Nick Grinder specifically, but, like, the whole crew gets changed over for the next Columbia mad scientist Karloff flick. Yeah. So, I was trying to find any kind of hint as to why that might have happened, and the production in this film is fine. I, I don't think it's because of any poor job that they did um, in this finished product, if anything, um, because the fact that there was no tension, I can see that as kind of pointing to an, a, a problem with the editing and pacing and use of music. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the only problem I can see with the production. Yeah, I mean, it must be... Uh, like, if I had to guess, like, you would think that maybe if this one made less money than the previous ones, there'd this be idea that, like, well, this we know that this formula works, but, like, clearly it's giving us, like, you know, diminishing returns doing it with the same people over and over again. Let's get in a new crew, see if that brings, mm-hmm. you know, new eyes on it, freshens it up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That, that's, that's probably what a lot of it is. There are elements in this movie that feel like they're only here because they're expected. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of appendixes walking around delivering lines in this movie. Um, Dr. Paul. Yeah, yeah, Paul Ames. Um, he's, like, the nominal hero. But even, like, Garth's daughter, Martha, like, she basically has nothing to do with anything. She's in a few scenes to be someone who can sort of talk to Garth for, like, exposition reasons. But really, she's present in this movie basically just to scream and faint at the climax so that we can have a young woman to be threatened. And then it feels like Paul exists in the movie just because if you have a young woman, you must have a young love interest to go with her. But he's hardly in the movie. Like, I don't think he even gets a close-up. I have no idea. Like, he was in the first um, scene at the trial. There's, like, another scene where he calls the house and finds out that's where she is. And then there's the scene where he comes in with the police and finds her. And then there's the epilogue. And then he gets talked about a few other times in a few other scenes. And that's it. Yeah. And this is the person who, like, theoretically is our, like, male lead. And theoretically, Martha is our female lead, right? But they're just here because... There's some law written down somewhere that they have to have these characters, you know? Yeah. I I think you make a great point that there's parts of this film that really should have been kind of cut out during the script editing phase. They're vestigial. Yeah. And they kind of bring things back to what my points were about editing and music, Mm -hmm. too, with, like, not holding tension the pacing was odd. I think the biggest example is the fact that we just sat there listening to this guy play music. And I, I thought about, like, is there something we're supposed to be noticing with the music? Like, is he hitting wrong notes to, like, in- illustrate that his hands are going? But it sounded fine to me. Yeah. Um, and there are just parts where, like, the the first time the murderous urges come over Garth before he attacks Howard... Like, you can see Karloff acting, but it should have been cut or shot just slightly different. Mm-hmm. Or had music in it to build that tension, to show mm-hmm. that something's going wrong. Yeah, absolutely. The whole murderous urges thing is, given that it's supposedly the big motivating factor of the movie, it's really weakly... Demonstrated. Yeah, and established, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's sort of a throwaway line, like, oh yeah, let's get this murderer's blood. And then later it's like, oh, it must be the murderer's blood that's causing me to do this or whatever. But, like, it's never 100% established, like, why he Jekyll and Hyde's the way he does between normal Garth and murderous Garth. Like, it's just every time he tries to get uh, blood from someone to make the serum. But, like, why? Yeah, it's not like he's a vampire and the smell of blood excites him to the point of attacking someone. Yeah, it's... Like a shark. Exactly. And, um, you know, I made the joke earlier that this is the blood of Orlac, right? Yeah. But what makes Before I Hang different is that in Orlac, he thinks he's a killer because he has the hands of a killer, but that's not true, mm-hmm. right? It's a It's a ruse designed to, like, drive him mad. But in Before I Hang, 
Garth really is a killer because he has the blood of a killer. Like, killer's blood really does turn an innocent man into a murderer, and that's, like, kind of a disturbing real-world idea, like, in terms of its implications. Um, I mean, we've seen that idea before in Alvarna. Yeah, this idea that ethics are a genetic trait. Yeah. Um... It's a very classist idea, too. It's a very eugenicist idea, is oh, what it yes. is. I mean, yeah. Now, that being said, it's it's a welcome change in the movie simply because we've seen the fake-out version a couple times. So sort of divorced from real-world implications, it's like, okay, fine. It's just never really explained well enough to justify its position in the movie. Like, it's as if the movie almost takes it as a given that a murderer's blood would make you into a murderer. Because yeah. it doesn't really bother to, like, go into any detail on it. Yeah. Karloff is great, uh, both as the sort of older and sweeter Garth and the younger and more murderous version. Yes, but this movie, I think because it was like, it's the murderer's blood, it just seemed like this film was taking such great pains to be like, no, he's a nice old man. Mm. It's just because of this murderer's blood that he's evil, Mm -hmm. that he's doing bad things. And I know that that's been the archetype that he's been playing in these types of films, and it goes all the way back to with him being Frankenstein's monster. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know, maybe it was just in this particular case where they just, like, pounded you over the head with it, that I'm just like, I'm a little tired of it. You know, I can see why there's a market for the Todd Slaughter, like, maniacal, evil guy. Mm. Rather than these, like, I mean, it wasn't even like this character, like, Dr. Garth was morally gray. No, he's a completely innocent man uh, who's just driven to kill by these instincts that are beyond his control. Yeah. I think Karloff plays it well, though. Is what I mean to say. Yeah, I guess it's really just the film's treatment where, like, like the creature, like Frankenstein's creature, I mean to say, it's not like he's, like, completely good. Mm. He's not completely bad. There's some ambiguity and nuance there. And this mm-hmm. film just completely throws out all of that nuance. And I guess it's been, like, eroding away as we see these archetypes. Yes. And now this is just the most eroded version, and maybe that's why it it irked me. So, like, Karloff did a fine job. I'm just kind of tired of seeing him like this. I want to see him in, like, a role like the Black Cat. Mm, sure. I thought the the hair and makeup used to to demonstrate his age in the movie was very effective. Like, he really is visibly younger after the serum and stuff, and I think it was... I think both versions were effective because the old version you know, was clearly old, and the younger version was clearly young, but they neither one of them felt sort of exaggerated in that way that age makeup in Hollywood movies can sometimes be, where, like, someone who's supposed to be 70 is given makeup that makes them look like an Egyptian mummy. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I think it was that was well done. I think a big mistake in this movie for me is POV. Because we stick with Garth? No, we don't stick with Garth enough. Okay. Garth is nominally our point of view character just because he's the only character who's through the whole movie. If you think of the way that the scenes where he kills people are shot, the idea is that the horror in this movie is supposed to be from the point of view of the victims. Of like, oh no, Garth, no, please don't, no, ah! Yeah. Um, 
And that's not really effective in my eyes. Primarily, it's not effective because we never hang around the victims all that long. Because it's a movie with multiple victims, we're just kind of with each one for about a scene. We don't really care. Where the horror should be is from Garth's side, not in the killing, but in the recognition afterwards of like, oh my god, what have I done? And like, I'm out of my, you know, control. And this is where the real, like, Orlack movies did a better job, right? Like, the, the horror in this movie should be the same horror that we see in Hands of Orlack with, um... Conrad Veidt. With Conrad Veidt, of like, oh, you know, my body is not my own, and I'm out of control, and I'm doing these things that I don't want to be doing, and we don't really get that. When he goes to kill Howard, like I mentioned earlier how I wish the editing had been, or, like, the shots had been different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, like, it's kind of like a mid-shot. You mm-hmm. see from their waists up as they're preparing to do the thing. I wanted to get, like, closer to Karloff, and I kind of, maybe it was because of the lack of music, but I kind of wanted to hear, like, a whisper of kill. Sure. Kill. Like, getting a sense of, like, what is he hearing? Yeah, what's happening? What the fuck's going on? Why is any of this occurring? Yeah, because otherwise he just seems, like, nervous or tired or sweaty. Yeah, and, you know, they, they didn't even, like, have a good shot of him coming right at the camera. Yeah. And... You know, I know that maybe the fact that we're finding a lot of these sequences a little bit bland has probably some code blame, you know? Yeah, I think that's why, like, the nuance in, like, a morally gray character is completely out the window by this point. But also just even in the more um, tangible things of, like, the murder scenes, where, like, the way he kills people in this movie is he has, like, a handkerchief that he strangles them with, and it's the, like, least believable sort of stranglings I've ever seen in, like, anything because he, like, wraps it around, like, the back of their neck like a scarf, and then just kind of pulls, and And then we cut to a close-up of his face. Yeah, and it's like, that's not really, like, how to choke someone. Um, It's a code thing to, uh, not show how you kill someone, Exactly, yeah, you're not allowed to show exact methods of murder, right? Yeah. So it just, like, it's just something where It's like a very bloodless, hands-off kind of thing. The weird thing, and I've I've been wanting to say this about all these mad scientist movies, and maybe I said it in a previous episode and I just can't remember, but one thing that did really come to me watching this one is how, like, this would not be a movie today. Because this is a movie where our focus is entirely on, like, very old people. Yeah. I mean, like, that's kind of the point because of the thing about old age. But... Movies today focus on, like, the characters are, like, early to mid-twenties. Yeah. The actors are, like, late thirties at the most. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the reason why I say I've noticed it about all the Mad Scientist films is because there's something refreshingly realistic when it's like, ah, yes, this is one of the most respected scientists in his field. Here's Boris Karloff. He's, like, 50-something. As opposed to a lot of modern media that's like, ah... Here's the most brilliant neurosurgeon on the world. Meet 18-year-old Taylor Jordan. He has 18 degrees and, like, you know, an IQ of 306. And it's, like, played by Justin Bieber. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Sure. I see where you're coming from. Do you want to rank this one? Sure. Where are you looking? So, I'm looking fairly low on the list. Um, The highest I would put this is at 55 Mm. underneath the Unknown and Above, uh, Invisible Ray, 
Um, and the lowest I would probably put this is around 59 with the Golem. I was looking a little bit higher than you. Okay. Uh, not by, like, a ton, but a little bit higher. I was looking around number 45, uh, putting this below Supernatural, but above the Vampire Bat. We are both in agreement about it being below the Mummy, which, as you explained last episode, is the philosophical middle of the, the list. That's right. So I can see why you're looking, like, below Supernatural, and because and, that is where I started. I knew that this was going to go below The Mummy, but I couldn't figure out how I felt about this film in comparison to The Bat or The Magician, mm. um, The Sealed Room, all these things. Even The Unknown, which, like, we did talk about it being a bit more of a rom-com with Lon Chaney Sr. kind of being a horror guy mixed up in this rom-com. That film had scenes like a horse coming crashing down on the dude's chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I still don't really know how they did. And that was kind of shocking to me versus this film where, like, it was a steady, like, not really tense about it. But at the same time, this was shot like a horror film throughout the whole thing, not a rom-com with a horror character. So um, what I was sort of thinking when I was looking at things is like, this movie is never as interesting as Supernatural is. Like Supernatural yeah. is a very weird, bizarre movie. And if you want to talk about movies where like people are killers against their wills, that's a much more interesting yeah. version. Yeah. Um, the Vampire Bat, I thought this was maybe better than that simply for production reasons. Like, this is better shot. This is better acted. This is, like, a much better made movie overall. The sets are impressive. Yeah. Like, don't know how uh, these doctors, especially one just freshly out of jail, can afford a place like this. Yeah, these But mansions. it is very nice. Um, but I can sort of see what you're saying about some of these lower films. Like, I don't know, like, is this better than The Invisible Ray? Is it better than Werewolf of London? I'm not sure. Um, I felt like it is probably better than Werewolf of London, because they were both fairly tenseless. Sure. <laughs> what do we think about Invisible Ray? Is that the one where, like, it's the one where he has, he's, like, like melting the hands. statues off the church or yeah, whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, at least... At least the signs in this film, you can kind of be like, yeah, okay, versus what? radiation. From Jason. the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah. That he got. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about all of that. Yeah. That whole sequence. Mm -hmm. Just bringing back the memories. Um, okay, well. If... So, like, I'm happy to move up. Is it better or worse than either version of the bat? Like, this little section here where we've got the bat, the magician, the bat whispers. I mean, I was not a fan of the Bat Whispers. Mm -hmm. um, the Bat, I think, did some really neat things. It was fairly tight in the way that, like, everything that happened had a payoff. It didn't have these, like, remnants of tropes. <laughs> what did you call them? Uh, ancillary? Appendixes? Appendixes. Um, things just left over because, oh, you have to have the couple in this film. Like, the bat, everything has a payoff. I think it's better than Spanish Dracula. Like, I think they yeah. both have pacing problems, but I think this is better shot than Spanish Dracula. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, do you want to go... 
I don't know. And then what about this versus something like Genuina? Yeah, that's really hard because Genuina is a mess in and of itself. Um, they're both just going off on that trend, <laughs> you know, like ca- sure. cashing in on something that seems to make money. Sure. Well, in, oh. in terms of like the premise in either of those films, mm-hmm. Before I Hang probably does a better job of explaining it. Even if it, <laughs> if that explanation is a little bonkers. If we're talking about premises, right? Like you're talking about yeah. these movies being cash-ins, right? Mm-hmm. Genuine is a cash-in on Caligari. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, yeah. Before I Hang is a cash-in on The Man with Nine Lives, which is a cash-in on The Man They Could Not Hang, which is a cash-in on The Man Who Changed His Mind. Like it's the end of this very long string of kind of derivative films, which makes me want to put it below The Magician, The Magician kind of introduced a lot of stuff that we went, oh, this will show up later Mm. in Dracula or Frankenstein, but it was, you know, four or five years before those movies. Um, So how about below the Bat Whispers and above Spanish Dracula? Does that feel right to you? Yeah, I'm happy with that. I just feel like the Bat Whispers, even though it's a straight remake of the Bat, um, (laughs) had its own things that was adding, like it was our first sound film, it was in widescreen, you know, it was doing some interesting things. Yeah, and it was trying to do interesting things with sound. It wasn't very successful, but it was like the first. Mm -hmm. All right, so then entering the list at number 50 is Before I Hang from 1940, directed by Nick Grinda, bringing the total number of movies on the list to 77. Wow. (laughs) If you would like to see this list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today. You can see the miscellaneous list where films just didn't quite make the horror cut. And you will also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, suggestions, anything of the sort. If you'd like to contest any ranking, including this one, Go to our appeals box, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help us out by leaving us a review or rating on any of those services, or wherever you happen to listen to the show. We're accessible on most podcasting apps through our RSS feed. Another way that you can show your appreciation is by letting a friend know about us, uh, tweet about the show, uh, reblog the Tumblr posts, talk about us on Mastodon, I don't know, (laughs) Uh, but put the word out there for us. If you really enjoy the show, you can also show us your appreciation by heading on to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. All new patrons get their names shouted out on the show, and at higher levels, like $5, you get access to bonus audio, and at $10, you get access to bespoke horror fiction writing. We are hoping to one day hit a hit our Patreon goal so that we can start doing monthly bonus episodes covering horror-adjacent films like... Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, <laughs> or The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, or Adam's Family Values. I don't know. Oh, I would love, I would love to review that. 
So anyways, yeah, help us out if you think that sounds great to you also. It sounds great to me. Be like me. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are back at a studio that presumably knows how to make horror films, uh, Universal. Okay. Uh, for The Mummy's Hand. Okay. Which, you know, should... Speaking of Adam's family values, is this where the thing gets created? No, but I'm hoping that at least The Mummy's Hand proves to be a respite from these kind of samey mad scientist movies we've been watching for a while. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. 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 <laughs>